So hi and welcome to the Story of Software podcast. Today we're going to talk about Challenger Banks. We're joined by Jason Maud, who's Chief Technology Advocate at Starling Bank. Jason, how are you today? I'm doing very well, thank you. I hope you're well too. I'm doing great. So Jason, you have more than a decade of experience in the fintech sector. You're coming from a software engineering background. And today we want to unpack a few topics around challenger banks and changes happening in the financial services space. So maybe to begin with, how would you describe what a challenger bank is? So challenger bank is a label that normally gets applied to banks that sprang up after the financial crisis of 2008-9. If you look at the number of banking licenses issued by the Bank of England, you have to go back at least 100 years, if not more, before the financial crisis to find a new banking license being issued by the Bank of England. So it was a you know, very rare, almost unheard of thing. Most of what took place in terms of the creation of new banks since the uh, the start of 20th century, really, was mergers between two already existing banks. So the challenger banks sprang up in the wake of the financial crisis, when it was realised that what we really needed was more banks, that the industry had gotten too narrow, there were too few banks offering too little choice, and that they were all too big to fail. What ended up happening is the first one of these challenger banks to be founded was Metro Bank, which was very much a bank that wanted to go back and focus on the traditional aspects of banking. But then after that, a number of banks such as Starling Bank came along, which were, instead of being focused on taking banking back to what it was before the 1980s, say, instead going, well, what does banking look like for the 21st century? And for us, banking for the 21st century looks like supplying people with financial services and information about their finances via their mobile phones, right? Because that's how people interact with data in the modern world. Uh, So we opened up a bank that was entirely branchless, no branches whatsoever, entirely digital, entirely delivered over the mobile phone. And that, I suppose, is what challenger banks have come to be known as, right? The banks that are entirely digital, uh, entirely based over the internet, no branches, no physical infrastructure whatsoever. Jason, how do you deal with maybe customer skepticism when you're a branchless network? Like if there's nowhere they can go to shout if they can't access their funds, is there a certain reticence among consumers about engaging with that type of bank? Yes, absolutely. How do we deal with it? Uh, The answer is slowly. It takes a lot of time to build up trust and you need trust in order to uh, run a bank. What we have found that we have developed trust in very quickly is in our handling of data. We put people in touch with their data very quickly and in a way that they've never seen before in a financial sense. So we give them instant notifications whenever they spend money. We gave them aggregated spending insights. We gave them the ability to have a whole range of controls over the security of their debit cards, for example. Now, more and more of these things are becoming standard. But what is keen to note is that it was Starling Bank and other banks like us who did these things first. 
And without us, these features wouldn't have appeared because, you know, they just wouldn't have been developed. It is said that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. And uh, I am flattered every time I see one of the big incumbents advertising themselves with, hey, we now allow you to freeze your card or see your aggregated spending or anything like that. So data-wise, we are very much trusted by our customers. And you can see a lot of people nowadays have a multi-banked account set up where they will put their money, their salary, into a traditional bank and pay out a few big bills out of there, such as their mortgage, say. And then they will transfer huge amounts of money, or not huge amounts of money, but you know, a spending money, effectively, into their digital bank account. And then they'll spend their daily spending, their shopping, and their lunch, and you know, transport, and all of that sort of stuff on their Starling account or similar. And that's because they trust how we handle data. And hopefully, we will slowly build up enough trust you know, for them to trust us to handle their money as well. Jason, would it be fair to say that there's a large proportion of your customers who have multiple bank accounts? So they may have that, you know, traditional bricks and mortar type bank where their payroll gets transferred over and then they use you guys for the day-to-day activities you just mentioned. Yeah, I think that there is a lot of that going on. And I think that the reason behind that is that for a long time, both inside the banking industry and outside it, there has been this idea that you can either have reliability and security or you can have cool features that are delivered very quickly. And I think that idea is so pervasive in the banking industry that it is even followed by people outside the banking industry. You know, even customers of the banks, they might not be able to articulate this, but they have this idea in the back of their mind that Starling Bank can't possibly be safe and reliable because it's fast and convenient, right? And I see it as part of my job to challenge the idea that these two things are on a seesaw, that you can only have one by getting rid of the other. I think you can have both at the same time. And if you're going to look at one or the other, like what would you say are the advantages for for a sterling over the, let's say, more incumbent traditional banks? For the consumers, I would say that The advantage is not only do you get all of the data benefits that I was talking about before, but you also get a system that is constantly evolving and developing new features, new ways of interacting with your money, uh, new products and services that you can easily connect to, and that it's all one connected system. We don't have multiple systems in the background where, you know, the sort of thing where we store your address four or five times in four or five different places, and some of them might be incorrect. We have one connected set of systems which handle your data in the correct way. We're also much more reliable, I would say. We've developed a system which we don't need to shut off to deploy new versions, for example. You're not going to get that message saying, between these following hours, the system will be shut off and you won't be able to get access to your money because we're doing some maintenance. We hardly ever have to do that and we try to uh, you know, not do it at all. And yet we are changing the system fairly consistently and constantly. So I would say that we have developed a system which delivers you new features and gives you reliability and security at the same time. Jason, could I ask you about the difference in terms of technology strategy between the likes of Sterling and those incumbent banks? Sure. So I'd say that 
The main technology strategy difference is how we develop new technology and how we maintain existing technology. The incumbent banks will maintain and develop new technology very much on a project basis. So they will have a project and they will you know, plan how the technology is going to be developed. Uh, they will sit down and write a specification. They will write down criteria that the software has to fulfill. Then they will give that set of criteria to a set of developers who will develop the software and then the software will be handed off to testers and then it will be handed off to deploy the software to production. Now, the problem with that approach is that if you find an error in the software, either a bug that you know, wasn't intended to be developed or a missing feature, so something that you didn't think of but should be there, you'll find yourself in a situation where you have to wait another three months or six months for that thing to be fixed because this whole process takes quite a long time. The difference for Starling is that we develop and deploy very quickly. So we're deploying new code every day. We're normally deploying a dozen times a day or so. Um, and what that means is if we find a problem, we can fix it quickly. We can you know, quickly sit down and go, right, what's missing? What's the, you know, the thing that's missing or the, the bug that's crept in? Let's go away and fix that. And then we can deploy a, you know, a fix within a few days. And that doesn't have to be an emergency fix. We don't have to panic and stop everything and down tools in order to get an emergency fix out. We can do it very quickly in a fairly regular manner, let's say. Jason, we might look at the topic of customer experience. So if we look at Starling and their competitors, they're either low branch numbers or no branches at all. How do you get that customer engagement? I'm imagining it's delivered through technology, but I guess when you're rolling out new features, you're trying to, I suppose, accomplish something that maybe is more challenging for than it would be for the more traditional operators in the space. So how do you go about all of this topic? So the first thing I would say is that you mentioned our competitors there and mentioned other like low branch or no branch banks. They are our competitors, but we also see the likes of the big incumbent banks, the likes of your Lloyds, your TSBs, your uh, HSBCs, Barclays, etc. They are also our competitors. And in fact, they are the competitors that we are more interested in taking customers from, partly because those guys have more customers, but also because they have less of an offering in our mind. So we're also trying to develop something that will entice people over from the incumbent banks to bank with Starling. In terms of how we're developing new features and deploying them and looking at the customer experience, it's once again very much in an iterative manner. So we will develop a feature to try and meet a need that we see not being met, a problem that we see in the field of finance, something that customers lack at the moment that we think we can deliver quickly and efficiently through a highly automated system. And then we will design that to develop it and deliver a minimum viable product. And having done that, we will then iterate over that experience. So we will see how customers are using it. We will see how the process is being managed in the back office and so on. And we will iterate over it to make it more efficient, to deliver more functionality in a better way to customers. And gradually, over time, we will develop a better and better product. We should talk about security. And I'd be curious to know whether the security challenges faced by a challenger bank are the same as those faced by a traditional bank. Uh, broadly speaking, yes. We've got the same security challenges that they face. 
So this, you know, might be social engineering. So people trying to trick their way uh, into the bank and into the bank systems, cyber attacks, attempted blackmail or attempted gathering of data or fraud or, you know, any, any of these challenges, we will face exactly the same attacks as any other bank will do. And the benefit we have from our system is that we can respond far faster. The criminals who are attempting to get access to the bank are going to be doing so in an iterative and automated manner. They're going to want to put in as little effort and to try and get as much as they can for their return. It's often useful to think of these criminals as businesses, albeit businesses that are operating outside the law. Because that way you can try and counteract them by attacking their business processes, which for us means blocking their automated attempts or making their automated attempts far too expensive to be worth their while. And because we are using the same tools and techniques that they will be using, uh, we are often far better placed than the incumbents to try and tackle these threats. Jason, I'd love to look at what the advent of cryptocurrencies might mean for the likes of Sterling and for some of maybe the more traditional operators in the banking space. Yeah, so cryptocurrencies are an interesting one. There is obviously a highly devoted user base for cryptocurrencies who really think that cryptocurrencies are going to change everything. I think that specifically cryptocurrencies probably won't be as impactful as they think, mainly because they have a lot of problems with the ideas of safety, security that people need. Not safety and security in the sense of people being able to hack the blockchain, but safety and security in terms of questions like who is running the blockchain and you know uh, what are they doing with it, how are they maintaining it, and questions such as that. And I think that the lack of a centralized authority that makes blockchains so beloved of some people and so enticing also puts people off in certain circumstances. However, that's not to say I don't think that cryptocurrency won't have any effect. I think that certainly when you look at new ideas around currency, around things like stable coins, for example, those ideas are starting to be taken more and more seriously. And various different institutions, arms of governments, banks are starting to look into those ideas about, you know, what is currency? How is it used? How can we change currency to make payment methods more efficient, for example? Those sort of questions are starting to be asked, and I'm sure that some of the ideas around cryptocurrency will creep into those. Has the, I suppose, the COVID pandemic, has it leveled the playing field for challenger banks? Has it, I suppose, the fact that people are probably haven't been inside a, a bank branch now for a year, has that made it easier for the likes of Sterling? Um, somewhat, yes. You know, we've definitely seen an uptick, especially in our business bank account offering, because business banking for many incumbent banks is still a very manual process. So we've certainly seen an uptick there. I'd say that what has happened over the, the past 12 or 15 months with COVID is that I wouldn't say it's changed the way people have viewed technology more than it's accelerated it. So I think that the changes that we are seeing to do with digitization in banking and finance were happening anyway, but now they're happening far faster. That's the, the key important outcome of COVID for the, uh, the banking and finance industry, a massive acceleration of our digital offering.
One thing I, I noticed while traveling on business in mainland Europe was a lot of branches were being converted to work cafes, kind of almost like co-working spaces. Uh, so it seems as if traditional banks are looking to change their business models. And this was pre-COVID. In the post-COVID world, I imagine that trend is continuing to accelerate. So are the traditional banks going to start behaving more like challenger banks? Is that how they're going to respond to the challenge coming from the likes of Sterling? How do you see this all playing out over the next few years? So I see that incumbent banks will try to change. Whether they will succeed or not is another question. There is a lot of legacy in these incumbent banks. And by legacy, I don't mean legacy technology. That's there, but I don't think it's the important factor. I mean legacy culture, a culture which views technology in a certain way, which views banking in a certain way which views regulation and how to treat customers in a certain way. And I think a lot of that is changing far faster than the incumbent banks are able to change with it. So I think that some of the big household names will not be around in 10 years or so. I'm not able to predict which ones, but I think that some of them will just disappear. And the incumbent banks that are left will have changed themselves immeasurably in order to cope with the challenges of delivering banking in a very much more technological world. Jason, what would you say are some of the outstanding challenges that remain to be addressed within banking? I think there's a lot to do with the unbanked, How do you make sure that people who are homeless, say, or, you know, in difficult financial or domestic or work situations, how do you make sure that these people have a bank account? A bank account is becoming a more and more necessary thing. And, you know, you've got to make sure that these people have bank accounts in order to interact with society. But at the same time, such bank accounts are unlikely to bring in much money for the banks. So how do you make sure that they can be run sustainably for a private business? That's an interesting and challenging question, I would say. I would also say that there is a problem out there about data. So how do you make sure that we can transfer banking data around quickly and securely as the customer wishes? You know, making sure that customers own their data and can move it around as they want is a tricky challenge. And I think it's something that the banking industry is going to have to uh, spend a lot of time working at. Jason, my final question for you is, would you be able to share some ideas around what might be next for Starling Bank or for other challenger banks in general? Sure, absolutely. So I think that there's definitely going to be general expansion into new markets, new sectors, new products, and so on, as challenger banks become more and more mature and you know the challenger label drops away and we just become banks like any other. That might take some time, but you know, eventually I think it will happen. I also think that the idea of what a bank is and what a bank does and where it appears is going to change rapidly. I think we're going to see a lot more embedded finance. What's embedded finance? It is the idea that your financial options around the purchase of a good or a service or transferring of money to a person exists within whatever you know application or service or at point of sale rather than being separated. So a good example of this is the debit cards. You know, back in the day, when you went out to a shop to get, you know, groceries, for example, you had to first go to the bank to get cash and then go to the grocery shop. Whereas now, 
you don't need to go to the bank because the finance is embedded in the supermarket itself. You can go in there and you know tap your card and pay by contactless. So that's an example of embedded finance. And I think we're going to see this more and more in various different financing options of increasing size and complexity. Fantastic. Jason, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been great to speak with you. Thank you very much. Production was by Albina Krasteva, with editing from Adnan Tukar and music by Robert Cooney. Join us next time on the Story of Software podcast.